it's been estimated up to about like 60 to 70 percent of all of healthcare could be shoppable meaning it's a predictable service that doesn't have much variability in cost and there's no reason you should go to one place to get your you know yearly blood work done and it's 80 bucks and then go to the one down the street and it's 800 bucks like it's there's no reason for that Welcome to Thinking on Lincoln, the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things on 23rd and Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Shelton. A little different episode today, not joined by my usual co-host, Ryan Haney, who's out today. We do have Lindsay here as the producer. So just a solo show. Uh, We did have a guest. Super excited about this guest as well. It's a personal friend of mine, Will Brune, who's had a lot of experience in the medical field. He's currently a med school student here at OU. He's spent a few years at Johns Hopkins University working under Dr. Martin McCary. For those of you who may have had the privilege of listening to him back in uh, 2018, I think, maybe 2019, he was the the keynote speaker down in Tulsa um, talking about price transparency and the the rising healthcare costs. So super excited to, to have him in the studio today to talk to him. Hope you all don't get too upset that Ryan isn't here. I know he's the star of the show, but hope you all enjoy the episode with Will. Super excited for today's episode. I'm joined by Will Brune, a longtime friend, actually, who's decided to join the podcast to talk a little bit about healthcare. Will, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here, Kirk. Good to see you, man. Yeah, of course. So tell us a little bit about your background here and how you got involved in this the healthcare scene. Yeah, so I, uh, I graduated from Oklahoma State University in 2016 and took a couple years off before medical school to go work at Johns Hopkins and do some research with a with a dear friend and, and colleague uh, named Dr. Marty McCary. Um, he, he leads a lot of research in the uh, space of like healthcare transparency and um, identifying waste and different ways healthcare could be more efficient. Because if anyone that's listening has gotten their insurance premiums from the last year, you know that it's a disaster out there. So, right. so we've been trying to identify kind of how to, how to fix some of that. And so I spent a couple years at Hopkins and, uh, since then, I've just developed some cool organizations and businesses around these ideas of, um, you know, um, how to decrease waste and uh, increase efficiency and quality in American healthcare. So, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's, I've obviously, for those who don't know, I've known Will for about eight, nine years now, room together in college. Actually, it's been super exciting seeing what you've been doing. So I'm, I'm glad to actually get to talk to you about it a little bit more officially. So the research, like you talked about, Marty has been surrounded trying to identify efficiencies and ways to maybe correct how the market's been. So what have been some some key specific things that you guys have found throughout your research that have affected healthcare costs? Yeah. I mean, how long do you want this podcast? Well, as long as you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's, at the end of the day, a, a lot of it comes down to pricing failures within healthcare. And, and the reasons for pricing failures are numerous. Um, some of it is uh, there's a lot of unnecessary care going on out there. You know, uh, physicians have a lot of autonomy and how they can practice medicine in in the U.S., as they should. But um, as with any industry, there's always going to be those outliers that kind of abuse that. And so there's a lot of unnecessary care out there. We we did a survey at Johns Hopkins and asked practicing physicians, um, what percent of all medical care in your specialty do you think is unnecessary? Just meaning it was a test or a surgery or a prescription that did not need to be handed out. And the answer from thousands of practicing physicians in the U.S. was 21% of all medical care. Is unnecessary. So, wow. if that's actually true, um, 
that's a huge driver of costs in healthcare. Because right. um, you all, I think I saw something, you guys estimated it's what, $3 trillion is spent every year on healthcare in the United States, right? Something yeah, like that. it's, it's uh, after defense budget and, and military, it's, it's, uh, it's the highest budget in, in the U.S. And, and so um, pricing failures in all the different ways are kind of the, the reason that um, the insurance industry is a mess, the hospital pricing is a mess. Um, that's the reason you get surprise bills after you get you know a surgery done. You get twelve different bills in the mail, and so all the frustrations I think kind of come back to uh, an, an inability to price healthcare correctly. Right. So have you guys seen any ways? We talked to Dr. Keith Smith here, who's done some work at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, yeah, yeah. who's tried to make that, but at least the transparency a little more open, so people can do a little bit more shopping to help some of that. But have you seen, or at least identified any ways to help the problem at all? Yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on right now to, to help. You know, Keith Smith is kind of a pioneer in this space. He's he's well respected all around the country. Um, for those that don't know who he is, he he owns a, a a practice here in Oklahoma City called the Oklahoma Surgery Center, and they're doing some pretty revolutionary stuff over there. They've uh, they've actually, if you go on their website, you can click on you know any part of the body that you're having a procedure. Um, and click on which procedure exactly you're having, and he'll give you a, a an exact price as to what you're going to pay. So you kind of like, just as if you're shopping on Amazon for Christmas, you put things in the cart and then you check out. That's kind of how it works over there. You you put your procedure in the cart and you check out, and, you, and then you just find out when you're going to have that procedure done, which is pretty revolutionary for anyone that's had a procedure done in the U.S. You know that you go there kind of blind as to what the what the bill is going to be like on the back end. Um, and so, so people like Keith are doing really cool stuff. Um, there's there's clinics around the nation like Chen Med that are popping up that um, provide really high quality care uh, on the direct or on the primary care level. Um, they offer kind of like a monthly subscription type model where you pay um, you know seventy bucks a month uh, for somebody to be your uh, general physician and and you know exactly how much it's going to cost every time you come in or need some blood drawn or need need a CT scan or something like that. Um, and then there's other groups like uh, Sesame Care out of Kansas City. They're they're a really cool company that are doing some stuff around um, kind of kind of trying to become the Amazon of healthcare. So, you know, if you need a uh, if you need like a colonoscopy done in Seattle, you can go on SesameCare.com and and search you know that procedure in that area, and they'll give you kind of a breakdown as to the highest quality and lowest cost providers for that thing. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on around this space i think we're still really far off from it being fixed but um yeah there's certainly hope i think that's good to hear i feel like it is interesting because a lot of people who may not be in the space see it as like a disaster and it's very it's the, the conversations are so negative but talking to you and to dr keith Smith, you, both of you seem a little bit more optimistic than i would have guessed about where the at least the direction's heading which is exciting so you talked about some of those fixes. Are there any barriers? To like, there, it sounds like there's some cool things happening amongst those institutions you mentioned. Are there barriers to more people kind of heading in that direction that you've that you've seen? Yeah, certainly. I mean, th- there's massive stakeholders out there, you know, and lobbyists in D.C. that control a lot of the decisions that are made around this issue. And you know, I I personally lean more like libertarian, like keep the government out of my life. But I think in one area the government does need to step in and really lay down the law is, is within healthcare. Um, you know, you saw some of that happen with like the executive order on price transparency. That was a really good step forward. Um, but I think there's a lot of uh, political and you know high power um, barriers to getting a lot more of this done because you know those that have the power and the money kind of make a lot of the decisions, whether that's the insurance companies or the the large chain hospital systems or um, 
you know, the lobbyist groups. And, you know, for instance, like that price transparency bill was, uh, I think, pretty universally accepted within medicine as like a good thing and, and good good way to move forward with some better pricing. But the, as soon as that came out, the American Hospital Association, which represents the hospitals of the U.S. and kind of their making sure their bottom line is as high as it can be, you know, came out and, and sued sued the administration over that instantly. And, you know, a lot of that just has to do with the fact that they don't want people to have to see what their prices are. So, um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of barriers, but like I said, there's there's some cool innovators in the space that are doing cool stuff. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. The idea of they're pushing back and showing their prices. I actually read an article today in the Wall Street Journal where they're highlighting hospital ER prices in, I think it was Massachusetts, in the Boston area. And I think there was a three-mile radius where someone with, you know, the the same person can go to one ER hospital, got built, can get billed and upwards of nine hundred dollars. The exact same visit, same insurance, and everything is about five hundred dollars at a different hospital, maybe three miles away, which is crazy. Oh, yeah. I think that it's we, that big of a difference. Yeah, we see that all the time. Where you know, if you get a, you know, there's a study done a couple of years ago on a, a really common um, cardiac procedure called a cabbage or coronary artery bypass grafting procedure. They, uh, it's a pretty standard procedure within um, cardiac surgery. And um, we, they, they found, if, depending on what hospital you went to, you could pay 40, 54 grand out of pocket or 58, 580 grand out of pocket for, um, for that procedure. Jeez. And so, you know, there's, there's crazy variability in this stuff that doesn't need to have variability, which is kind of why we've been pushing for this idea of, let's just open up the light and and show prices and then people can adjust from there and let the let the market take it from there it is interesting yeah i mean for all those who advocate for free markets it's it's a a foundational principle that people need to like prices and information tool that people have to use to operate in a free market without that there's really no for everybody who wants to say that healthcare can be a free market even without maybe government interference it really can't be without that that other tool which is the price yeah, I mean, th- there are certainly situations where there's never going to be a certain price. You know, if you get in a car accident just now leaving this place and you get rushed to the ER, we have no idea what's going on. So we can't we can't price, you know, a, a, a radial fracture and a head contusion. And, you know, we, we don't know what's going on, so we can't price it, obviously, in those emergent situations. But it's been estimated up to about like 60 to 70 percent of all of healthcare could be shoppable, meaning it's a predictable service that doesn't have much variability in cost and there's no reason you should go to one place to get your you know yearly blood work done and it's 80 bucks and then go to the one down the street and it's 800 bucks like it's there's no reason for that there's no supply chain to um, you know higher costs that would justify that so um so yeah that's kind of the basis of what what a lot of our work has been surrounded by yeah so tell me a little bit about i know you've you and marty started a company called restoring medicine that's kind of aimed towards fixing some of these problems. Tell me a little bit about that. I haven't, obviously I've, I've driven you down to DC to hang out with Marty. I've been around for a while, but I still feel like I don't quite know what's been going on there. So tell us a little bit about what Restoring Medicine is all about. Yeah. So we, we created this group a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of it was just created out of a demand for people. You know, we were speaking about this, these issues around the country and we had so many people, you know, come up to us or email us or call us and say like, Hey, I love, I love what you guys are trying to do. Like, how can we be involved? And so, we felt like we had to we had to respond in some way to kind of capture the energy around some of this stuff, and so restoring medicine was our you know first attempt at doing that, which is you know it's it's a nonprofit. We we essentially compile resources for people um, to combat the American health system in different ways. Whether that's you know you got a really high priced bill, 
here's some resources to help negotiate your bill because you can negotiate any hospital bill or clinic bill that you get. It's negotiable every time. And we have some resources as to how to do that. You know, if you've been sued by your hospital for a bill that you've gotten, we've got some resources for that. If you're a business that's looking to cut down your cost for uh, your, um, you know, employee benefits, we've got resources for that. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of a way to capture a lot of kind of this energy around the, these ideas of price transparency and helping people out that, you know, don't ha- don't know how to navigate it because it's a very complicated system. So that that's one side of things. And then we created a, a company um, on the other side called GAM, or it stands for Global Appropriateness Measures. And that company, um, we've, we've compiled some metrics around overuse and overutilization, kind of capturing that idea of 21% of all medical care is unnecessary. Um, we're kind of going after that chunk of waste in healthcare. Um, and so we're measuring physician practice patterns and identifying outliers that uh, might be overutilizing or, you know, in, in different ways, um, hijacking the healthcare system to benefit themselves. Yeah, that the both those sound like incredibly important important areas to, to fix. I wanted to talk a little bit about giving people resources, particularly those who have been sued by their hospitals. That's been a big issue here in Oklahoma. I know you've looked at I think Virginia, right? Or that I think I was reading there's a big story, Oklahoma Watch did a story the last couple of years over Oklahoma hospitals suing patients and I think they found that hospital system averages five hundred and twenty suits every month here in Oklahoma. Um, so I think people would be super interested in looking at a place to find resources, kind of combat that and help negotiate their prices. So what have you seen surrounding hospitals? I don't know. I don't know if you've looked at Oklahoma at all, but I know you've, like I said, in Virginia, you've looked at what is, what's going on there and why are hospitals so intent on, I don't know, essentially going after their patients once they leave the hospital? Yeah, it's quite tragic. You know, as, as medical professionals, we take an oath to do no harm to our patients, but yet um, a lot of times we think of that as only causing no harm in the medical setting, but in reality, what we're doing is we're taking care of patients in, in a hospital setting or whatever, and then ruining their financial lives or their credit scores or whatever it might be because they get this insane bill in the mail. Um, and so, yeah, we, we got a hint that this was happening out there, that, that hospitals were suing patients. Um, we Somebody had tweeted at our team several years ago that there was a hospital in New Mexico, Carlsbad, New Mexico, that was suing a ton of their patients. So Marty and I jumped on a plane um, shortly afterwards to go check it out, see what was going on. And sure enough, we, we found out we went to the court, um, the local court there and talked to people and pulled some records and found out that actually about half of the town uh, or at least ha- half of the town's population had been sued by this hospital at some point. And if you go around town, you ask the people like, you know, what do you think about this medical center? They'll say, oh, you know, don't go there. They'll, they'll sue the socks off of you. And so we were like, man, this is this can't be true. Like, is this going on elsewhere? And so we, we did a kind of a big research project looking at, um, you know, uh, hospital suing patients in Virginia. We, we picked Virginia because they have a pretty good court record system that allows you to pull things electronically. So we did a big analysis of uh, hospital suing patients in 2017 and found that um, about 36% of all hospitals in Virginia sue patients and garnish their wages, which means, you know, if you go to that hospital, you get a procedure done, you get a bill in the mail, if you don't pay within 90 days, you all of a sudden are handed a, um, a, a court order to, to show up for court to defend yourself. If you don't show up to that, you get an automatic um, you get an automatic ruling that you're guilty and you owe this hospital this money. And once again, the hospital can put whatever price tag they want on that. Um, so it might be, you know, you might go to the, for instance, we saw one guy that was in the hospital for about a day and a half for a headache. They ran all sorts of labs and stuff, which 
you know, in my opinion, were medically unnecessary. But um, and he got a bill in the mail for twenty one thousand dollars for a day and a half in the hospital. And this was like a this was like a, a maintenance guy that made twenty eight thousand a year. So you can't pay that, you know. And so um, found out that thirty six percent of hospitals in Virginia were doing this um, and garnishing their wages. And so a lot of times these patients wouldn't even know that they were sued until they looked at their paycheck and about 20% of it wasn't there month to month. And so, um, so yeah, it's been pretty tragic. And we found this, we found this happening in pretty much every state. There's a couple of states that have outlawed it, but, uh, for the most parts, most states are, are doing stuff like this. Jeez, that's crazy. I know. Yeah. After that story came out um, from Oklahoma watch, there was some legislators who, who looked at ways to kind of combat this, um, trying to outlaw surprise medical billing at least. So the idea was that if you didn't give a patient the chance to see those costs up front, that you wouldn't be allowed to garnish any wages. Um, so I think there's, I don't think that bill passed, but hopefully we get some more traction on that and have some more ideas to keep that from happening. Cause it really is. Yeah. Like you said, it's so tragic to have these people go through most likely a serious medical procedure that's causing a lot of stress and then to get out of that and then suddenly be, or, I mean, you already have debt you're dealing with anyways, and then to pile it along with, mm-hmm. with wage garnishments, crazy for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's this whole gap of people that, you know, make enough to where they can apply for Medicaid, but they don't make enough to really afford, com- uh, uh, you know, common premiums and deductibles that the insurance companies have these days. So you have this whole gap of people that just fall through the cracks and, you know, they, they have an emergent situation medically and they, they just get crushed. You know, they, uh, you know, one of the most common reasons people go bankrupt or have to foreclose on their homes is because of medical bills. And so, you know, as once again, as medical professionals that we should never accept that, you know, it's, it's totally unnecessary to have to have your patient, you know, get treated in the hospital, but then on the back end end up ruining their lives in different ways. Right. That is it. Yeah. It's astounding. So I wanted to, to ask you about that second part of what you guys have been doing on the kind of the back end with the appropriateness measures you talked about. How does that affect pricing? And I think, I know me and you listened to Martin McCary's first book on Accountable um, a few years ago together as we were driving up to D.C. And I think for me, it opened my eyes a lot about how, from my work, what we've been doing here at OCPA, so much of what we look at is is kind of these transparency um, issues and the ways that government can kind of either step in or step out of healthcare to help address these costs. But it sounds like there's quite a bit of stuff going on in the actual hospital and healthcare space that's attributing to these rising costs with some of that unnecessary care. So can you talk about some of the stuff you've seen with that and how these, these measures may help address yeah. that? Yeah, certainly. So um, this project was born out of uh, Johns Hopkins. We were doing research around unnecessary care. We had gotten a grant to look at that. And the first area we looked at was um, a field called Mohs surgery, M-O-H-S surgery. Um, and in this procedure, they it's a skin cancer procedure where they, you know, you might have a little block of cancer um, on your cheek of your house, and um, and a Mohs surgeon will go in and excise that area of tissue that has the 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 skin cancer. And what we found out, and and speaking to the experts in this field, the American College of Mohs Surgeons, we found out that um, the the Mohs surgeons get paid per block of tissue they take out. So in most cases, you should go in and take out the entire block of cancer in the first first time you go in. Um, but what we found out was there was a handful of surgeons, not, not a lot, most surgeons did the right thing, but in the data we found there was a handful of surgeons that would go in and just cut straight through the cancer so that they had an excuse to take out multiple blocks per mm-hmm. per skin, skin lesion. And um, you know, in, in, the, in speaking with the experts in this field, they said, 
if you're doing on average more than 2.3 cuts per case, you know, on average, there's there's really no excuse for that. You can't argue that medically speaking that you have a practice that would that would cause you to have to take out, you know, three, four, five blocks of tissue every time a patient comes in. And um, so we, we found that really interesting that we looked in the data, we have we have access to all of Medicare's data and surely we found this tail of physicians on the spell curve that were on average doing five, six, seven blocks per case. And what we did was we um, sent out some mailers to every Mohs surgeon in the U.S. just saying, hey, Dr. So-and-so, um, you know, this is a quality collaborative project with your your um, college, the American College of Mohs Surgeons. We're just letting you know this is where you lie on this bell curve, you know, four blocks per case. And here's the rest of the country that's more so to the left, you know, one or two blocks per case. And uh, we just want to let you know this is where you stand. It wasn't punitive or anything. And uh, we watched the data over the next several years, and sure enough, those doctors that were notified that they were outliers uh, dramatically came back towards the mean. And that little project saved Medicare like uh, almost twelve million dollars that year, just from notifying the outliers that they were they were you know doing things unnecessarily. And so that was kind of our proof of concept that this works. Um, we've done this in several different fields now. We've got um, a couple hundred metrics now in in like thirty different specialties and work closely with a lot of different insurance companies and hospital systems to identify unnecessary care with the hope of, you know, driving that down and, and hopefully making the healthcare system more affordable for everybody. Yeah, that is, that, that's, that's great news, first of all, but it is interesting how severe, like such a slight, slight change can affect costs like that. Do you, what do you attribute to this idea of, I mean, I, I imagine like it was, it was, encouraging that all of these doctors without having to have anything punitive happen kind of changed course and self-corrected is there like a cultural reason why some of this unnecessary care gets in there is it just like a lack of training maybe a lack of accountability where, where how does that creep up in this in the medical field yeah it's a good question and one we you know our research team has been trying to tackle since we started on this journey the, at the end of the day, we, we just have to say, we like, we're not totally sure. There's, I think there's a myriad of reasons. We, we had a study just come out last year on an analysis. We, we actually did focused interviews with all those Mohs surgeons that had corrected towards the mean, just kind of trying to identify, like, why were you such an outlier? What was going on? What, were you doing this purposely or not? Um, and and it, there was really no one or two reasons. It was, you know, some of them were just old physicians that did things an old way and, you know, had, you know, had not updated their practice to, to be more in line with how it should be done today. Some of it was clearly just, you know, gouging the healthcare system. Um, some of it was, you know, a lack of education and just poor surgery technique. So I, I think there's, there's a ton of reasons why it happens. Um, you know, for the most part, there's a financial incentive to, to do things that way. Obviously um, we found particularly with physicians that, you know, own their own, um, own their own clinics or own their own endoscopy suites. There's a lot of overuse versus like academic centers. Uh, there's less of it because there's more, you know, more accountability, um, more people watching over your shoulder. So, um, so yeah, that, to answer your question, there's a ton of reasons and, and there's, there's not really one solution to it. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I feel like nothing in life really has one easy solution. So, yeah. so how is, how is all this experience? I know since I've known you, you've met med school and being a doctor has kind of been been the goal for you for a while now how has this experience in research and the few years you've been here at OU Med affected the way you view healthcare has it changed it at all have you are you more positive more negative 
the same about how everything works? Yeah, I, I think I think initially when I started diving into this work, it it kind of depressed my uh, my my ambitions towards medicine, and I I kind of went into like a, a a dark hole of like oh, it's all it's all going to crap, and like there's no fix, and everyone just wants to make their money, and and I, I would say that I, that was pretty immature of me. Um, I, I would say most doctors are out there doing the right things. There's so many good doctors out there that are in the trenches that are you know. Just, just trying to take good patient care, and, and they have limited resources, especially in rural areas like in Oklahoma. There's, there's doctors out there doing amazing things with very limited resources. So, I would say my, the base of how I feel about the people that practice medicine are that the good-hearted people that are trying to do the right thing. But as with any industry and and any time in life, there's always going to be those outliers of the, you know, in our analyses of all of our different metrics, somewhere between three to seven percent of physicians on a given field like a specialty will be outliers on a metric and so um so there's always going to be you know those five percent or so that are doing the wrong thing but for the most part i i've been trying to look a little bit more towards the 95 percent and be like well yeah we, let's not get too fixated on these five percent when 95 percent of them are, are, are right in the average of where they should be in terms of their practice pattern yeah, that's a healthy way to be. I, I know when I started working here, I had a similar a similar view. Once you kind of see how the, the sausage is made, you get a little pessimistic, oh, man, a little totally. yeah, towards the whole process. But yeah, at the end of the day, most most people we're not perfect, but most people at least have good motivations. And yeah, that, that's good. That's good to know. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. This was super fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely, man. So, Congrats on this. This is fun and. Uh, you guys are putting out some really good content so appreciate it so well done and uh always good to see you man yeah you too take care thanks